you've got your Bibles with you, you can open with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, that's where we're going to be camping out this morning in verses 16 through 32. There's an interesting event recorded in Scripture in the book of Joshua. Early on in the conquest of Canaan, of course, Joshua is the leader who was appointed after Moses to bring Israel into the promised land. There's an interesting event where the people of Israel are confronted by these five Canaanite kings. And these five Canaanite kings meet the people in battle and they're defeated. And so then you've got these five kings on your hands and what do you do with defeated kings? Well, first, Joshua had, had them kind of imprisoned in a cave for a little while while they were beating down the last elements of resistance. And they came back to the caves. And Joshua brought the kings out. And it's really interesting what he has the kings do. He has the kings, and, he, and this is a very common thing at, at this time. This is what you did with a defeated enemy. He had the kings get down on the ground, all five of them, and lay down on their faces. And, and he had his five top generals come, and his five generals put their feet on the necks of the kings, which is a very strange thing to do, but the imagery is pretty clear, right? It's, it's humiliation, right? These kings who were once great men over their people have now been defeated, and that's very clear to anyone who's watching, right? They've been dethroned. We're going to see a kind of parallel to that sort of humiliation in our passage this morning. But it's a greater sort of humiliation because this is a greater sort of king. This is not some local, regional, Canaanite warlord. It's not even one of the greatest emperors of the world. Here in Mark chapter 15, we're going to see the king of the ages, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the incarnate God, humiliated at the hands of sinful men. This morning, we're going to see humble King Jesus. Jesus is our humble king, and we're going to see him in his most humiliated state here in Mark 15, beginning in verse 16. Let's read together. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to your word, you would show to us, reveal to us the real Jesus. Not the Jesus of our invention or our imagination, but the real flesh and blood Jesus who walked the dirt streets of Palestine, lived and died, and who was raised from the dead three days later. That you would introduce us to the humble King Jesus who even now reigns at your right hand in heaven. We ask that you do all this by your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you have seen a, a film adaptation of the crucifixion story. Of course, The Passion is the most famous one, Mel Gibson's film from a few years back. Most of those film depictions of Jesus' crucifixion seem to major on the element of pain. That the crucifixion was a physically torturous process, and it was. There's Hardly a style of execution that can match Roman crucifixion for its amount of pain. But it's interesting to read this account here in Mark because Mark doesn't foreground first the pain of the cross. It's there. It's implied. But what Mark foregrounds is the shame of the cross. Less the pain of the cross, more the shame of the cross, the indignity of the cross. It would have been painful for anyone to be crucified, and it was. Many people, thousands of people were crucified on Romans' crosses. But the crucifixion of Jesus was particularly heinous because of the shame of the cross. Because this was no common criminal hanging on the cross. This was the king of kings. It's a theme in this passage. Three times Jesus is called the king, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Three times Jesus is called the king. Three times he's called the king in a mocking way. The people saying these words didn't believe it. They didn't believe Jesus was the king. They were saying it ironically. They thought it was funny. <laughs> Look at the king up on the cross. What kind of king gets crucified? But there's actually a double irony behind their words. What they didn't understand was that this king was actually a king. That on the cross hung the king of the ages. Jesus, the Messiah, who is truly God, truly man. The incarnate God. And so what Mark is going to show us in this gospel is the humble Jesus. The humble Jesus. Jesus is our humble king. If you want to hang on to one central idea, that's the one this morning. Jesus is our humble king. And he displays his humility in this passage by his silence. Not a word from Jesus. In verses 16 through 32, Jesus is entirely silent. 
bearing the reproach and the shame of the cross without objection. Jesus is our humble king, and we're going to see his humility on display in three scenes. First, his humility on display as the Roman soldiers beat him. Second, his humility on display as he's brought to the cross and nailed to it. And third, his humility on display as he hangs on the cross and bears the reproach of his own people. Three scenes we're going to look at this morning. Our humble king. First, Jesus before the Roman soldiers. Verse 16. The soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So we're picking up on the story just after the the trial with Pilate. You may remember from last week, Pilate, the Roman governor, had sentenced Jesus to crucifixion at the demands of the priests and the crowds. And so he turned Jesus over to the soldiers. These soldiers are not the same Jewish guards who arrested Jesus in the garden. These are hardened Roman soldiers. These were soldiers who, in all likelihood, in all likelihood had no great love for the Jewish people. Their one role in Judea and in Jerusalem was to keep the Jews from rebelling. And so they took this opportunity to mock this man who was a Jew, but also apparently had claimed to be the king of the Jews. And so it's interesting in verse 16, we hear that they actually called together the whole battalion. They didn't need a whole battalion to crucify Jesus. But they thought it would be great fun to mock this man, this supposed king. Verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Purple was the single most expensive cloth to produce in the ancient world. The purple dye is very expensive. And so if you were wearing purple or scarlet, that was a sign of your wealth. It was a sign of your station. Kings wore purple. And so they clothed Jesus in purple as a way of mocking him. Oh, great king. They twist together a crown of thorns. Again, crown, a a sign of royalty. Caesar, returning home from victory, would have had a, a laurel wreath, a laurel crown on his head. But they crown him with thorns. This is an ironic crown. It's a mocking crown. They don't actually think he's the king. They think it's a joke. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! This is how they would have hailed Caesar, right? The famous line from Shakespeare, I think it is. Hail Caesar, we who are about to die salute you. But here the hail is ironic. Hail Jesus, Jesus, great king of the Jews. We're about to string you up. What a king you are. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. You can picture it, right? Kneeling as before a king. They don't believe that Jesus is a king. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. There's a couple of things I want to note here. First, a note about Jesus and his humility, and then a note about ourselves and what we can learn from these soldiers. First, a note about Jesus' humility. They were mocking Jesus as the king, but Jesus actually was the king, right? That's the double irony through this whole passage. Jesus actually was the king, and Jesus actually is the king. We don't want to read these passages just in the past tense, right? Jesus is the king. 
This Jesus even now reigns at the right hand of the Father in his resurrected body. Jesus physically reigns in heaven today. And he's going to return one day and, and reign forever in a recreated heavens and earth. What the Roman soldiers didn't realize was that as they were clothing this man they called the supposed king of the Jews with a purple robe, they were clothing the one who now reigns clothed in glory and light in heaven. As they crowned Jesus with a, a, crown, a mocking crown of thorns, they crowned the one who even now is crowned with glory and power in heaven. And as they bowed the knee and said, Hail King Jesus! Little did they know, they bowed the knee to a king who one day will return. And Scripture tells us, at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what did Jesus say to them? You guys better watch out. One day you're going to think better of this. You know, I could summon an army of angels right now. He, he could have. Silent. Humble King Jesus. As we've been talking about, Jesus had an intent. He had a purpose. He had a plan. He was there for a reason. And he bore the shame silently because he knew it was the only way to accomplish the, the plan for which the Father had sent him. We'll talk about that more as we come along. I want to look at the soldiers just briefly. When we read passages of Scripture, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I tend to think of myself sometimes in these people's shoes. What would it have been like? And where would I have been? Typically, we will read a passage about the soldiers like this, and we say, well, I, I certainly wouldn't have been one of those soldiers. Right? Certainly wouldn't have been like that. We, we like to think of ourselves maybe more in the, the, the place of Simon of Cyrene, right? Helping Jesus to carry his cross. But I want us to consider, and this has really struck me this week, that when we deliberately sin against our Lord and King Jesus, who we all confess as King, there's a sense in which our sin is actually greater than the sin of these soldiers. These soldiers sinned in ignorance. They said, Hail King Jesus, but they didn't mean it. They didn't believe that this was the, any kind of king. This is a Jewish carpenter from Galilee who'd come up with some kind of crazy following. They didn't understand who Jesus was. We know. We get together on Sunday morning and pray, saying, Hail King Jesus. Hail the King of the Jews. And then we find ourselves throughout the week figuratively spitting on Jesus, going our own way, striking him with rods as we choose rebellion and sin. Now, praise the Lord, we have a humble King Jesus who died for our sins, amen? But the, the, the good news of the grace of the gospel of Jesus 
isn't supposed to enable us to minimize our sin, right? Actually, as we look at our humble Savior heading to the cross to die for our sin, the seriousness of our sin is only magnified. It's a, it's a serious thing to sin against our Lord, and it's a serious thing to do it, as the Puritan said, to sin against light. We're not in the dark like the, like the Roman soldiers were. We know he's the king. May that be some f- the fuel in the fires of our fight for sanctification this week as we consider our sin is serious. That's the first scene. Second scene on the way to the cross. Verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. This is a fascinating historical note. I I love things like this. It was obvious that people, either in the Christian community or in the community to which Mark was writing this gospel, people knew Alexander and Rufus. These are real people. And Mark is, in effect, saying, so the guy who carried Jesus' cross was Simon, and uh, we do this all the time, right? It's the name game. You, uh, you know Rufus and Alexander? It's their dad, right? And, and you can go ask him about it, right? Because Simon was always telling that story. It's an amazingly human anecdote, and it's, um, and it's also a testimony to the reliability of Scripture, Right? These things litter the New Testament. This isn't written like a myth. This is written like an eyewitness testimony. Hey, you can go ask Alexander and Rufus about it. Their dad was there. Deeper underneath this anecdote is, is the sobering truth about Jesus' physical state at this point. Again, pain isn't the overarching theme. You have to kind of dig underneath it, but it's obvious at this point Jesus was physically incapable of carrying his own cross. Most criminals, they'd carry their own cross, but Jesus had been beaten so severely by Pilate's soldiers that he wasn't able to, in all likelihood, they were just, they were just requiring him to carry the cross beam. He couldn't carry the crossbeam of his own cross. He was so physically weak. He'd been so beaten, so torn to shreds. He was barely able to carry himself. This is the humble king. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Towards the end of this passage, we're going to look at what the Jewish people and what the Jewish leaders said to Jesus as he's on the cross. Now, the the Romans understood what a king was. And so they understood what foolishness it was for a king to be crucified. But the Jews were thinking even more deeply. When the Jews said king of the Jews, king of Israel, they were talking about Messiah, which is a concept we've talked about a lot in the Gospel of Mark. Of course, Jesus is the Messiah. But the Messiah was this this figure who'd been long foretold in the Old Testament, a savior who was going to come and restore the fortunes of Israel. And this savior was going to be a king. A king reigning on the throne of David. 
Because, of course, we remember those promises made to David in the Old Testament that a king would come and would reign on David's throne forever and establish an everlasting kingdom. And so these Jews were looking for a king to come and reign in glory on the throne of David. And so as they're spitting this title back at Jesus, King of the Jews, they're saying, how preposterous is it that Messiah would come and be crucified? That's ridiculous. That's far-fetched. Oh, great Messiah, what are you going to do now on the cross? A lot of salvation that is. Mark, in a very subtle way, is going to point us in verses 22 through 24 to reasons why we can understand that Jesus' crucifixion was not contrary to his mission as Messiah. Jesus' crucifixion was not opposed to his office as king. It was, in fact, precisely what the Messiah was supposed to do all along. Because if these people had read their Old Testament more closely, they would have seen that what was happening to Jesus had been specifically, explicitly foretold by David himself. David himself. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 21. Tell me if this doesn't sound like Jesus on the cross. This is David speaking as he's led by the Spirit, words which were prophetic. The Messiah was supposed to be the better David, a new David reigning on David's throne. And so this is David himself in the Spirit foretelling the new David who would come. This is what he's going to be like. Verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Isn't this Jesus on the cross, bearing the reproach of all, his friends abandoning him? Verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Mark 15, 30, 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Buried deep in the Old Testament, prophetic evidence that the Messiah King who would reign on the throne of David would be offered wine. Little did the soldiers know that when they offered Jesus this wine, they were fulfilling scripture that had long been foretold. The wine was offered History tells us as a, as a form of anesthetic, actually. Um, it would have eased the pain somewhat of the crucified and actually quickened the death somewhat. The wine mixed with myrrh, and we're told in other places with gall, with vinegar. And this, this had a, a sort of uh, anesthetic effect and would have eased the suffering. We're told in Mark here that at first Jesus refused it. But eventually, after he'd been on the cross for a while, he did take some from the sponge that's recorded in John's Gospel. The other psalm 
to which Mark is referring is Psalm 22. If you want to turn there, Psalm 22. We're going to spend a lot of time in Psalm 22 next week. Jesus is going to explicitly quote from Psalm 22 on the cross. But for now, I want to look at verses 16 through 18 of Psalm 22. Again, tell me if this isn't exactly like Jesus. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Jesus on the cross. People around him, encircling him, pierced hands and feet on the cross. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. They'd stripped Jesus. You could see his ribs on the cross, arms outstretched, garments being bartered over underneath, throwing a set of dice. When I was a kid on Good Friday, I, I, I don't know if any of you had this experience as a kid, if you grew up going to church. Of course, Good Friday is the Friday before Easter. It's the Friday where we remember Christ's crucifixion. And I can remember being in Good Friday service and feeling like the, the atmosphere was of a funeral and getting the sense that the most spiritual thing for me to do on Good Friday was to be sad about Jesus dying. And I always had the sense that I wasn't, it's just a kid thing, right? But I, I, I didn't feel like I was sad enough. So I was working really, really hard to whatever, get, get sadder for Jesus dying. Because my sense was that the cross was a great tragedy. And there's one level on which the cross is a great tragedy. Son of God crucified. Greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. But it is more than a mere tragedy. Because as we've been discussing the last few weeks, this was Christ's explicit strategy. Jesus went intentionally to the cross, and it's all the more obvious with this, based on this evidence from the Psalms. The cross was the Father's intention for the Messiah all along. The humiliation of the cross was no mere accident of history. It was the explicit plan of God the Father. The cross wasn't opposed to the king of the Jews being the Messiah. The cross was the plan for the king of the Jews, the Messiah. This is exactly what Jesus came to do. And as we look on Jesus here, and as we consider how we're to think of Jesus on the way to the cross, there's a, there's a level on which we can see it as a tragedy. But on a, more, on a deeper level, the tragedy of the cross actually is our victory. Right? On the cross, as Jesus died, what did he do? What did he accomplish? We've said much about that this was the plan, this was the plan all along, but what, what did he do? Take a look at verse 22. They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. The importance of this place name is that Golgotha 
was outside the city gates. In order to be crucified, Jesus was ushered outside the city gates to Golgotha, a hill outside the holy city, outside of Jerusalem. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 13 rather, tells us the significance of this fact. Why was Jesus brought out of the city gates and what does that tell us about his mission? Hebrews 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Burned outside the camp. This is the system that God had set up in the Old Testament for the people to deal with their sins. We're all sinners before a holy God. We all need to be reconciled to him. Our, our, sins, our sins stand against us. And in the old covenant, the Lord had set up a system where, where animals would, in a symbolic way, stand in to bear the sins of the people. That the people would bring an animal to sacrifice. They'd put their hands on the animal symbolically because the animal's bearing their sin. They'd kill the animal. The blood would be brought to the altar in the temple and the animal would be taken outside the city gates and burned. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that the importance of Golgotha, the importance that Jesus was burned, that Jesus was crucified outside the gates, is that Jesus was a stand-in for our sin. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That was Jesus' purpose. Writer of Hebrews is consistent on this and again and again in the book of Hebrews he says those animal sacrifices they weren't enough they were symbolic ultimately they couldn't actually achieve forgiveness of sins they were pointing forward to a better sacrifice who is Jesus Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice the only one who could ever bear our sins and so when we're told that they brought him to a place called Golgotha, we're witnessing Jesus leaving the city, leaving the gates to be slaughtered outside the city for our sake, for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is why the crucifixion isn't merely tragedy. Because on the crosses, Jesus died he won our freedom. On the cross as Jesus died, as he bore the reproach of the nations, he reconciled us to our God and to our maker. Mark recounts for us the crucifixion without too much ornament. Verse 24, they crucified him. They crucified him and divided his garments among them. Verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. Verse 26, again here, the king language and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They didn't realize how right they were. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. 
final scene here, Jesus on the cross, bearing the scorn of his own people, both of just the regular old passers-by and of the Jewish priests and religious leaders. Verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The people were apparently referring to Jesus' talk about the temple. We remember talking about that. Jesus said a lot about the temple. He did teach that the temple, the physical temple, would be torn down. But this temple about the temp- this teaching about the temple being torn down and rebuilt in three days, we know that's not about the physical temple. Jesus explicitly says that's about the temple of his body, right? which the people didn't understand. They said, you're going to tear down Herod's beautiful temple and build it back in three days? It t- it's taken him years to build that. And so mocking him on the cross, they say, if... If you're so good that you can rebuild the temple in three days, why don't you come down off the cross? Give that a try for starters. But the people didn't realize what they were saying. They were trying to use Jesus' words against him when in fact he was doing exactly what he said he would do. What did he say? That he would that the, he would destroy the temple and in three days he would be rebuilt. He's talking about his body. There on the cross, the temple of his body was being destroyed, literally torn in two. And three days later, his body was raised from the dead. These passing crowds spoke too soon because he was doing exactly what he said he would do. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him. He saved others, he can't even say himself. Let the Christ, if you're really the Christ, if you're really the king, why don't you come down off the cross? Do that miracle for us for starters. Don't die, and then maybe we'll believe that you're the Messiah. Then we may see and believe. Again, these people are speaking too soon. Jesus would come down off the cross, dead. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. And you know what many people did? They saw him and they believed. They saw him and they believed. The high priests didn't. They tried to suppress the news. But that's what we've done, right? We've seen and believed. Not seen Jesus physically, but we've heard the news, right? This eyewitness testimony that's been passed down over the years, Jesus is alive, and we've heard it, and we've said, Amen, Jesus is alive, and we've believed. We've trusted in this Messiah who was long foretold. Jesus is the humble king. Humble before the Roman soldiers. Humble on the way to the cross, knowing his purpose, knowing his plan knowing that his place in redemptive history was to bear reproach as the king. I 
I want us to consider finally, as we said before, Jesus is not in the past tense. Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father even now. And the purpose of this passage is not first, I don't think, to get us to be real sad about things that have happened in the past. The purpose of this passage is to give us a window into the character of Christ. Because the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father now in glory is the same humble king. The one we come to in prayer, bearing our hearts to, he's the humble king who died for us, willingly. The God we go to that we sometimes worry is too harsh for us. We sometimes worry he won't listen, that he won't forgive. We worry that we're too far gone. We worry that we're too weak. He's the humble king, seated at the right hand of power and glory. The humble king who willingly gave himself for us. That's the king. This is our God. Behold your king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much for forgiveness. Lord, I, I pray that you'd reintroduce us to the humble king, that you'd enliven our, our daily walks with you with the knowledge that, that even now you're seated at the right hand, Jesus. We thank you for your, your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the cross. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.